Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Hosea chapter 8. Once again, we're still in that middle section of Hosea wherein God is delivering a fairly lengthy indictment against the people of Israel. Here, though, in chapter 8, the impending judgment appears imminent, even at the door. Set the trumpet to your lips. That opening line appears addressed to a metaphorical watchman who has seen the approach of an enemy army. That is your situation, Israel. Judgment is at the door. If there is still time to repent, then it had better be now, because one like a vulture is already circling over the house and over the people of the Lord. That's the tone for this chapter. It is urgent, it is strident, it is clear in its object and intention. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. I love how Derek Kidner comments on this opening verse. He says, If no one in Hosea's day, gazing complacently at the house or household of the Lord, like the disciples admiring the temple in Matthew 24, 1, had noticed the ominous speck in the sky above it. It was high time someone pointed it out. The vulture might not have long to wait. The object of its interest, the ailing nation, had even less. Closed quote. So that's the urgency. And that's a great comparison. Kidner is saying that the situation in Israel at this point in the 8th century B.C., was very comparable to the situation of Israel in A.D. 30 or 33 or whenever it was that Jesus said what he said to the disciples as they were admiring the temple. Do you remember that? The disciples came out of the temple and they were overwhelmed and quite impressed with the majesty and apparent permanence of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And of course, that's exactly what happened. About 40 years later, in AD 69-70, the Romans encircled the city of Jerusalem, besieging it and finally destroying it, burning down the temple and ravaging and dispersing the population. The Roman siege and destruction of Jerusalem is often referred to as the most brutal event in Roman history. An event very much like that was about to come upon the people of northern Israel. The Assyrians could be even more brutal than the Romans, and they were coming, and they would cut through the towns and cities of Israel like a hot knife through butter. It would be an apocalypse. And Hosea is commissioned here to sound a last and urgent warning. But the people were not prepared to hear it. Verse 2. To me they cry, My God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. Interestingly, the people of Israel often assume themselves immune from acts of judicial chastisement, despite that their history was replete with acts of judicial chastisement. 
It's hard to find a chapter in the Old Testament that isn't either narrating an act of judicial chastisement or prophesying an act of judicial chastisement. But every single time it happened, the people are caught by surprise. But we know the Lord, they would say. We are the chosen people, they would protest. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, they would cry. But as we have now seen several times in this letter, the people don't actually know the Lord. He knows them, but they don't really know him. They have been worshiping made-up versions of God for so long that they have lost contact with the actual God of Israel. They have spurned the good God who's actually there. They have rejected his good word, which would have led them to life and happiness and flourishing. And instead, they've embraced lies and deceptions of their own making. Therefore, despite Israel's protestations, the enemy would pursue him. Verses 4 to 6 explain in further detail the extent to which Israel has rejected the good. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. So here God says that Israel has shut him out of their political process. That, of course, should come as no surprise. God had appointed the house of David to rule over the covenant community, but Israel had rejected the house of David centuries ago. Their leaders came to the throne via murder, conspiracy, and bloodshed. The promises God made to David back in 2 Samuel 7 had nothing to do with anything as far as they were concerned. They were engaged in persistent and entrenched political and spiritual rebellion. The two often go hand in hand. To legitimize the political rebellion, the leaders nationalized an idolatrous church. They set up idols and created alternative worship centers so that their people wouldn't have to go down to Jerusalem to worship. Now, this use of the word Samaria is probably an example of using the capital city to stand for the nation, like how people might talk about Washington as a way of referring to the government of the United States of America. Samaria's calf was probably not actually in Samaria. David Allen Hubbard explains here, Samaria's calf was in all probability situated at Bethel, housed at the royal shrine. Hosea clearly links the calf of Bethel with the citizens of Samaria when he describes their mourning at its departure, closed quote. So, This indictment is probably targeted at the main religious shrine in northern Israel that actually goes all the way back to the first king of Israel, Jeroboam I. That story is told in 1 Kings 12, 28 to 30, which says, So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan, closed quote. So Jeroboam created two alternative worship sites. Uh, there were other smaller sites as well, but the two main ones were at Bethel and at Dan. And the one at Bethel was the most prominent of them all. It was the national shrine. 
And it was established explicitly so that the people would not have to go down to Jerusalem or up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was at the top of the mountain. Now, notice what Jeroboam said about the worship to be conducted in the shrine. He said that it would be worship of the gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, who's that? Well, that is a quote, actually, or almost a quote from the prelude to the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 2 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So Jeroboam quotes that. He says, come to Bethel and Dan to worship these golden calves that I have set up for the worship and adoration of Yahweh, the God who brought us up out of Egypt. But he ignored what Yahweh actually said. Exodus 20 goes on to say, these are the very next verses from that chapter. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. And I assume that would cover calves, golden calves, any kind of calves. So that God said, don't make any idols. Don't set up golden calves. If you do that, I will visit your iniquity upon you. Well, Here, then, in Hosea chapter 8, this is God saying, here comes your iniquity back upon your head. Look at verse 7, Hosea 8, verse 7. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. Jeroboam, my friend, you should have kept reading. But that's the charge against the whole nation. They didn't keep reading. Look up at verse 1 again, if you have your Bible open. They have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. So thanks for the redemption, the people of Israel were saying, but you can keep the law for yourself. These people were the original antinomianisms. They wanted to take the grace. They, they appreciated the redemption. Thank you. But they rejected the law. They rejected the word. They wanted to recast God into something they found more palatable. That is the essence of idolatry. It is an attempt to remake God, to keep the parts we like and to get rid of the parts we don't. That's why God keeps saying, you don't know me. You think you do, but you're praying to a God that you made up. That God doesn't exist. I exist, and I have come, and I am bringing the whirlwind with me. Verse 7 continues, The standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up already. They are among the nations as a useless vessel, for they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up, and the king and princes shall soon wreathe because of the tribute. These verses pile up a variety of very colorful metaphors and symbols. Daniel Carroll provides a useful and concise summary. Israel is a foolish farmer who yields disastrous results and loses what he has to others. It is a discarded and useless pot, a wandering solitary donkey that lacks discernment and a harlot who must hire clients, closed quote. Israel was playing a dangerous game and playing it poorly. But the game is up, the chickens have come home to roost, and it is now time to pay the piper. Verse 11. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. 
Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. Verse 11 is hard to render usefully into English. It's a play on words, and such things simply cannot cross over from one language to another. The NIV actually makes a half-decent attempt. They have verse 11 this way. Though Ephraim built many altars for sin offerings, these have become altars for sinning. That's probably as close as you're going to get. The idea is fairly straightforward. The more you engage in your false religious activity, the further you are from God. There comes a point when your worship of God is so corrupt that less of it would actually be better for you, better for everyone. These people were engaged in a great deal of religious activity, but none of it was governed by the word of God. That's what God says in verse 12. The word of God has become foreign to them. The law was foreign to them. Their their conception of God had no room in it for law, and so the law was as foreign to them as a message from outer space. As for the feasts and offerings, they were so corrupt as to be utterly unacceptable to the Lord. So, More of all that nonsense would only compound their guilt and only increase the intensity of the punishment that was even now coming upon them. Israel has forgotten God, but God has not forgotten them. He will remember their iniquities and punish their sins, and he will send them back to Egypt. He is speaking metaphorically here. This is a reversal of the Exodus. This is God The potter starting over again. There's a flaw in the pot. So we are going back into the fire. Not to kill, but to save. Not to destroy ultimately, but to purge, purify, and renew. This is severe discipline. There's no doubt about that. But it is not the end of the Lord's covenant commitment to his people. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified.
Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 